AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. From County Fair to Millennial Flair, Pabst has won a blue ribbon in many people's hearts. While some others look on and just wonder why. But love it or hate it, this affordable Lone Star has made a name for itself. Yet in the 1970s, they started going flat. And soon this drink found itself spending years in the brink. It took a new owner, advice from his kids, and a new direction for the palatable product to recarbonate this brewery. This is Pabst. On the brink. Ariel. Yes. Throw me another PBR. I can't do that, Jonathan. I I know. I I don't. I don't drink the alcohols. It's okay. I will drink one for you. All right. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Caston. We're talking about. Pabst today. Pabst. And it's funny because uh, you know, this is one of those stories that we thought we'd look into because of the the semi-recent resurgence mm-hmm. of Pabst uh, and the fact that this is a, a brand that is more than a century old. Yes. And so it's it's an interesting story that goes all the way back to before the Civil War. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Pabst was not even Pabst when it began. No. Um, and people might be like, why aren't you saying Pabst Blue Ribbon? Because it wasn't Pabst Blue Ribbon yeah, either. That's just one beer that's just, that this brewery would end up making. Yes. So this company's story starts in 1844. Although if you look at their official history, they say 1849. Yeah, it's really weird. When I was looking at their official history, some things didn't line up with 
everybody else's reports. It may very well be that the first five years of making beer was terrible. That's It's true. It's true. <laughs> Anyhow, what we do know is that the company was started by Jacob Best and his sons. Which is already great, right? Because you can just say it's the best beer. It is. Because it's well, made by the best family. You could. I won't say it is. I'm going to stay impartial. I am Switzerland in this beer game. It was originally known as the Empire Company, mm-hmm. this brew company, mm-hmm. and then it became Best in Company, and it started in Milwaukee. Yes, as many breweries do. Yes. And we had not just Jacob, who was the the father, the, the paterfamilias of, Ooh, fancy. of Pabst. Yes, you also had his sons, which included Philip, Charles, Jacob Jr., and Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And their first year of making beer, they made 300 barrels. 18 barrels at a time. Yep. And then in the 1850s, as the paterfamilias was getting on in years, he hands over the reins of the company to his eldest son, Philip. Philip Best takes over. Yes. So good old Phil. Good old Phil. Well, in 1859. Okay. You want me to hit this name or or do you want to give it a shot? I'm going to try it. And if I get it wrong, you can correct me. Mm -hmm. Um, A man named Johann Gottlieb Friedrich. Oh, very good pronunciation. Thank you. Uh, Or Frederick Pabst married Philip Best's daughter, Maria. Mm -hmm. He was a steamship captain. Yep. Pabst. The captain, Captain Frederick Pabst. Cap Pabst. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and so you might say, aha, I see where the name comes from. So he marries uh, Maria. And then just a couple of years later, in 1863, he would take the money he had accumulated mm-hmm. in his various uh, exploits. and Captaining. He has captaining and purchased 50% of the company, the best company. Yes, which was now... Philip Best Brewing, Mm -hmm. and he became vice president of that company. Mm -hmm. In 1866, Best sold the rest of the company to another guy, Emil Shondine. I'm going to let you you take this one. Yes, Emil Shondine. Emil Shondine, by the way, was married to Philip Best's other daughter, Lizette. So now his two sons-in-law were the two owners of the Philip Best Brewing Company. And the Pabst was the president and then Shondine was vice president. Mm-hmm. But Shondine passed away in 1894, and then his wife took over the vice presidency. Yep. So going back just a bit, because mm-hmm. 1894 is when Shondine passes away. But in 1874, the company would become the largest brewer in the United States, which is pretty amazing. Now, they would not hold on to that title forever, but it is interesting to note that at one point— Pabst, the well, and well, then the the best brewing yes. company was the number one largest mm-hmm. brewing company in the in America. And they had a main beer, so mm-hmm. like we said, they had a lot of different brews. But their main beer, which was Best Select, yep, this was the uh, what would eventually become Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yes, they started offering it in 1875, and they were taking it around to various beer competitions and fairs. Mm-hmm. And it was winning. Yeah, they were winning awards. They mm-hmm. had not officially won a blue ribbon, but to signify that the beer was, in fact, winning awards, they got the bright idea of how about we tie a silk blue ribbon to each bottle? Yes. And indicate this is an award-winning beer. Yes, yeah, so they started doing that in 1882. So they had been winning 
awards for a while Mm -hmm. before they started showing it off entirely. In 1889, they finally changed the name of the brewery to Pabst Brewing Company. Yep. And uh, by the early 1890s, one of the big purchases this company was making wasn't in hops Mm -hmm. or barley. Mm -hmm. It was in blue silk ribbon. Yeah. It seems like a hefty investment to me. Yeah. Like silk, silk is not cheap. Right. And it would actually become prohibitively expensive a little later, but we'll get there. Yes. Uh, So eventually they travel these fair circuits, they travel these beer competitions, and they come to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Now, I'm going to tell a little story. Please do. Because this is one of my favorite events in American history. It's, It's... a truly phenomenal gathering, mm-hmm. and so much incredible stuff was shown off at this particular World's Fair. So it was also known as the World's Columbian Exposition. It was one of the most elaborate celebrations in American history. So the idea of winning a blue ribbon there would have been a really huge deal. More on that in a second because it gets a little complicated. So the whole purpose of this event was to commemorate the anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World – This was obviously before we started to recognize (laughs) all the negative things that come with that because this is a time when people weren't really thinking about the indigenous population of the United States. But it's not necessarily what the World's Fair is remembered for. No. Uh, One of the things they're remembered for for this particular World's Fair was that Chicago, the city, had paid to have an entire section of city built for this. It was called the White City. And there were these phenomenal, amazing buildings. Only one of those major buildings still exists in Chicago, and it is currently the Museum of Science and Industry. And if you ever have a chance, if you live in Chicago and you've never been, you got to go. And if you live near Chicago, you got to go. And if you live far away from Chicago, plan a trip. It's worth going to. (laughs) It's a great museum. So this is the same World's Fair where things like the Ferris wheel first debuted. That was the brand new thing. Uh, the World's Fair was where Westinghouse was able to convince the United States to use alternating current as opposed to Edison's direct current. Thomas Edison was actually there too, showing off the kinetoscope, which was an early motion picture kind of technology. Mm-hmm. He was probably also stinging a bit yeah. over the fact that AC won out over DC. Yeah. His presentation might have been a little salty. Uh, supposedly Nikola Tesla was there shooting off lightning bolts from his hands, um, pew, you pew, know, pew. As, as only superheroes can do. And in other words, this was an incredibly prestigious and important event. The mm-hmm. world's attention was on Chicago. And if you ever really want a fascinating description of it, uh, this is just a, a recommendation I have for everyone out there. There's a book called The Devil in the White City. It's by Eric Larson. I highly recommend it. It has two main storylines. One is the preparation and launch of the Chicago World's Fair. The other, which is happening at the same time, and they alternate chapters, is a disturbing story about H.H. Holmes, an early serial killer who was active in Chicago at that same time. Fantastic book. Yeah. So this is where Pabst wins the Blue Ribbon, right? Okay, kind of. Not really, but kind of. Okay, so here's here's the deal. Uh, Pabst Best Select, the beer that they had been showing off at all these different festivals and stuff that was winning awards, was there to be judged. And there were judges to test different beers. Originally, they were supposed to uh, base their their judgments upon three criteria, purity, color, and flavor. And then each beer was supposed to get a score between 0 and 100. And if you scored 80 or higher, you were considered a remarkable beer. You would get a bronze medal and a certificate. 
That's it. Any beer that hit 80 or higher would get this. Eventually, the judges decided that they didn't like the criteria that had been laid out, so they made up their own criteria. I have no idea what it was. Maybe it was whatever gets you tore up the fastest. Who knows? But they, <laughs> That seems they, like a good criteria to me. Probably. Kidding. Yeah. Kidding. I mean, I, the, the longer the testing went on, the higher the scores got. Yes. But it was down to really two beers. There was the Pabst Best Select and there was an Anheuser-Busch beer. And the Anheuser-Busch beer was ahead by two points until the final scores came in. And then Pabst Best Select technically had the highest score of all the beers. There was no award for the highest score. It was just if you had 80 or higher, you got the medal and a certificate. So the judges weren't necessarily saying whoever gets the highest score, quote unquote, wins. But Pabst was saying that. He didn't let that stop him. So he said, this makes our beer the best out of all the beers at Chicago World's Fair. And that's where the legend of Pabst Blue Ribbon as an official thing, really started to take off, even though there was no Blue Ribbon. Yeah. Well, in 1895, they added Blue Ribbon to the brand name of Best Select. And in 1899, they changed the entire brand to Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yes. And by then, they were producing a million gallons or barrels, not even gallons, barrels. Mm -hmm. Gallons is thinking too small, Jonathan. Barrels of beer. It's okay. You don't drink. It's true. Uh, Yes. By the early 1900s, now they're ordering, they're still putting silk ribbon on their bottles. Yeah. And they're ordering like up to 30 million feet of this silk ribbon. Until World War One, Because World War I. then we get into a point where the United States government is uh, withholding certain stuff in order to use it for the war effort. And silk was one of the materials. So they weren't able to get silk ribbon during the World War One era. And then something else happened. That was a little more serious for the mm-hmm. beer industry than a shortage of silk. Yeah, but it meant that they didn't have to worry about a silk shortage anymore because prohibition happened. That would be when the uh, United States passed a an amendment saying you cannot sell alcohol yes. anymore. Yes, uh, prohibition lasted from 1920 to 1933. Yep. And to survive this time, Pabst decided to make cheese. Yeah, they pivoted. Just like online content has pivoted from articles to video, yes. Pabst pivoted from beer to cheese. Yes, they... Or more accurately, cheese food. Cheese food. They <laughs> called this a cheese-like substance Pabstet, <laughs> which just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. And they were actually really successful. They they did quite well during the prohibition because of this. Uh, they made 8 million pounds of Pabstet. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they were so successful that Kraft fought them over copyright issues, feeling that Pabst was infringing upon their copyright for cheese. And then once Prohibition was over, Kraft bought Pabstet. Yeah. So Pabstet would eventually make its way over to Kraft. It's funny because I actually found some uh, old radio ads for Pabstet. Mm -hmm. So I listened to them. And you'll be glad to know you could get it in the, and this is a quote, familiar round package. Or in a two-pound economy loaf. Well, geez, if I can get it in a two-pound loaf. And it's economical. You you save money that way. <laughs> they referred to it as cheese food, and they said it was the kind you could melt down into sauces to really make leftovers sing. That's another quote. So basically Velveeta. Yeah, and they also said it was an excellent source of food, food energy. energy. <laughs> so 
There's another thing we need to remember, which is that prohibition wasn't the only thing going on, especially toward the end of prohibition. From 1929, you're talking also about the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So that's an era where it becomes more and more important to be able to stretch your dollar as far as it will go. Or stretch your cheese. Yeah. Or (laughs) that, again, it tells you making your leftovers more palatable. Well, it was more economic to be able to have leftovers than to keep buying more food. So So the next thing that happens in Pabst history is actually something I had a difficult time finding the exact details on. Mm -hmm. Because it says in 1932, Harris Perlstein became president of Pabst Brewing Company. He was named president by Fred Pabst. But Frederick Pabst had passed away by that time already. So was it like on Christmas Eve and you just hear... Fred Pabst, my old partner. The steamship ghost of Christmas past. Um, Listen, we're going to be a little tipsy. uh, Frederick Pabst had a a son, Frederick Jr. So what I have garnered from my research is that it was probably Fred Jr. who took over the company. And then he was the one who named Mm -hmm. uh, Perlstein the the president. So Perlstein, his company, uh, Premier Malt Products, had merged with Pabst, and he became president as a result of that. Um, and this was right at the just before prohibition was to come to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as soon as prohibition is over in 1934, Pabst says, oh, we're going to double down. We we miss making beer. So we're going to make extra beer. And they open it in Illinois brewery. And they already still had the one in Milwaukee. Yes. yes. Uh, and then they start in 1935 switching over to a brand new type of packaging. So up to this point, they've been using bottles. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been using embossed bottles because they really – there was no easy way to print labels for quite some time. So that's why they had to tie the actual ribbon to the bottles because they couldn't print a label that had ribbon on it. Mm -hmm. But in 1935, they switched to something else because the American Can Company finally figured out how to can beer without it blowing up. And that's actually true. They Mm -hmm. tried originally in 1909 to can beer. But the carbonation would cause the cans to explode. That's and not good. That's so much of an alcohol foul. Uh, yeah, but one of the other benefits of canning PBR as opposed to bottling it is that they could print the label, the, mm-hmm. the ribbon on the label. Yep. So they no longer had to hand tie ribbons onto bottles. Also, it would have been weird to try and figure out how to tie it to a can. Through the little tab thingy. There was no tab on the early ones. (laughs) Well, yeah. But yeah, uh, so it worked. And it's funny because I actually looked into this. I wanted to learn more about the American Can Company. Uh, The very first beers to get canned were from the Gottfried Kruger Brewery, reminding us that Germany, of course, is the home of beer. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the first two types of beer from the Gottfried Kruger Brewery to get canned were Cream Ale and Kruger's Finest Beer. And rapidly, other beer companies followed suit. So this is the very first year the the American Can Company had been able to do it, and Pabst was on board from the beginning. Yes, yes. In 1946, Pabst was doing pretty well, so they started buying other beer companies. Yeah, this actually – spoiler alert for the rest of the episode – as we did this research, neither of us, I think, had an appreciation for how crazy – the beer industry is as far as acquisitions and mergers and sales. No, because when I think of something like Pabst Blue Ribbon or Coors or Bud Light or anything like that, they've just been around as long as I can remember. So I assume that they all started independently and remained 
independently successful. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Like they were all silos. But in fact, in a lot of cases, you're talking about one brewery that ends up licensing its recipe and its its uh, trademark to another company to actually produce all the stuff, which to me would be like if McDonald's were to license the Big Mac to Burger King. Mm-hmm. Like you go to a Burger King, but you would buy an, a McDonald's Big Mac and it would come in a McDonald's wrapper and it would be a McDonald's Big Mac, but you would buy it at a Burger King. To me, that that's almost the same thing and it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But anyway – that, I digress. We'll get more into it as the show goes on. Yes. By 1950, they're completely done with ribbons. They're completely into cans. It's all printed. Uh, sales were at their peak. And this is, again, where the history gets a little cloudy. It says Fred Pabst retired. Mm-hmm. And if it was Fred Pabst Jr., he died shortly after. So, so. He, he, he retired from life. Yeah. They say on the Pabst website under mm-hmm. our timeline once Fred Pabst retired, their sales started to decline. Mm. Like, they had reached a peak, and then he he retired, and things started to go downhill. And they tried a bunch of campaigns to boost their sales, and the campaigns were okay. Yeah. Like, they stopped, they stopped the decline, but they also didn't improve sales. So they kind of plateaued. Yeah. Yeah, they were stable by 1957 again. Uh, but then they lowered their prices, and they came up with a really good— like nickname for themselves, the premium beer at a popular price. Yeah, that became their trademarked marketing slogan for a long time. People would later say, much later, that this move would ultimately hurt them because mm-hmm. they became known as a bargain beer. Yeah. And so people people started to forget that this was a beer that had been held in high esteem mm-hmm. and they just thought of it, oh, that's the cheap stuff you can get if you wanna yeah. if you wanna tie one on. But at the onset of calling themselves the premium beer at a popular price, it did work because yes. people are coming off. They remember this the recession and all beer. that. Yeah. yeah, and they remember it's an award-winning beer and it hasn't distanced itself from its previous history far enough for people to start thinking that. Right. So their sales start going up again by 1977, which is a, a big jump in time. We don't want to take you through every year. They're up to 18 million barrels a year that they were making. Yeah. So, uh, from 3.9 million in 1958. Yep. And then the next year, 1978, again, they reached their peak. They Just as they had peaked in the 1950s before Pabst had retired or mm-hmm. passed on or however you want to define it. <laughs> Maybe that's just the way Pabst defines passing away. It's when you retire. Oh. But, uh, but anyway, in 1978, they hit another peak. And then we're getting to a big brink moment. Yes, yes. The, the mountain range was about to, start, about to start the decline. Yeah. So in 1979, just a year after they they hit new heights, Pearlstein retired. And as far as we know, he actually just retired. Yes. <laughs> and then things took a sharp decline. It seems to be a theme, too, that we see someone in authority from the company mm-hmm. step down and then we see a drop in the business. To be fair with Pabst, we're going to discuss a little bit of what was the trouble immediately following this. But you know what? I'm what? getting I'm getting parched talking about all this delicious beverage. I'm going to go get myself something to drink. And while I do, why don't we uh, take a moment to thank our sponsor. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Was that tasty, Jonathan? Yes, my imaginary drink was delicious. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. After Pearlstein retired, a corporation of people tried to acquire Pabst. They tried to buy Pabst. Erwin Jacobs and... Like three other investors, they were part of a company, JMSL Acquiring Corp. And they Which tried, pretty much tells you everything they were doing, right? Acquiring yeah. Corp. That they were out yeah. in the business of buying other companies. And they tried to buy Pabst in 1982. Yeah. So why would you want to get a company that wasn't doing so well? What was it about this one company that was like, you know, we see failing companies all the time. Most people don't say, oh, I want to swoop in and buy that. Well, I mean, one thing they liked about Pabst is Pabst had remained debt free. Uh, if you if you think back to so long ago when we were talking about the history of the company, mm -hmm. they didn't take out a bunch of loans. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't put themselves into huge amount of debts like so many companies we see on the brink. They had made some acquisitions, but they did so in a way that didn't put them at, yeah. in deep debt to creditors. Which means if this acquisition company could buy Pabst, they could resell it without any strings attached mm. or with fewer strings attached, I should say. Yeah. And they had a plan already. Uh, 
Erwin Jacobs wanted to purchase this company and then sell half of its capacity to another brewing company called the G. Heilerman Brewing Company. And the idea was not to sell like 50% of Pabst's Mm -hmm. ownership, but rather literally two of the breweries, two of the physical factories, they wanted to sell it to Heilerman. Mm -hmm. So this story gets really kind of juicy and complicated. So I'm going to backtrack for just a second. Okay. Between 1977 and 1981, that was that period we were talking about of the decline, right? Mm -hmm. Pabst went through four CEOs in that time. That's four years, four CEOs in four years. So to say that there was problem at the management level is being very generous. Yes. You know, you can't really form a strategy and you can't really stabilize a company if you're constantly changing leadership. No, you can't. And and maybe the leaders coming in thought they had great ideas and when they failed were immediately booted instead of— Yeah, it's a sign also of a board of directors that has a very short—a very small amount of patience. Yes. Right? So Jacobs had acquired about 10 percent of all the outstanding shares for the company by 1981. And originally, because he was the largest individual shareholder, you know, he didn't have controlling interest, but he had a lot of shares. Mm-hmm. He originally demanded that he be made chairman of the board and that in turn, the board of directors open up four seats for his associates to also be on the board of directors. Yeah, but it sounds like if going through four CEOs, that the board of directors had no patience for stuff like this. No, they were not. He was often called an interloper. <laughs> like he was some outsider who was muscling his way in just because he had the the temerity to own a lot of money. And so Jacobs was not able to get what he wanted. He mm-hmm. did get one seat on the board. So he he was on the board of directors. Then he was trying to get the company to buy another brewing company, specifically the Schlitz Brewing Company. But that wouldn't work out. Pabst went after Schlitz. But at the time, Schlitz said, we see your offer, but we're not really interested. We're more interested in an offer from the G. Heilerman Brewing Company, the same one that Jacobs would later want to try and sell half of Pabst mm-hmm. to. And so Heilerman, that company looked like they were going to get Schlitz. Ultimately, they, they didn't get it either. Another brewery, this gets so complicated, called Stroh Brewery would end up buying Schlitz. Keep in mind, Stroh Brewery is going to come back up in our story mm-hmm. later. So this beer business gets super messy. So Pabst didn't buy Schlitz in the 80s. It ultimately would acquire Schlitz in 1999. Mm-hmm. But that's, we're going to hit that later. So. Jacobs resigns his board seat in 1981 because he's not getting what he wants. And he says, well, if I can't get it this way, I'm going to get it from outside the board. Jeez. I'm taking my ball. I'm <laughs> going home. And then I'm coming back with all my friends and we're going to rough you up. Uh, I'm, I'm making this sound way more uh, petulant it's, than No, it it's very exciting, Jonathan. Continue. <laughs> so he goes and he buys up more and more shares. And then he tries to make the move to acquire Paps shares and sell this half capacity to the G. Heilerman Brewing Company. And the whole point of this approach was that he wanted to sidestep some antitrust laws, Mm -hmm. the Sherman antitrust laws. What that says is that you can't create a monopoly or even a regional monopoly, right? You have to have competition within the same industry. And the fear was that if Heilerman, the brewing company, were to go after Pabst directly, then the government would say no. You can't do that. because they're both pretty big at this point. Yeah, so Jacob's idea was, well, if I can go in and 
buy up these shares and then turn around and sell this stuff to Heilerman, it sidesteps that whole issue. They mm-hmm. get the brewing facilities, but they don't buy the company. Technically, there's still two companies there. There's still competition. This also is an indication of how crazy things were in the 70s yeah. and 80s, and which we've kind of touched on in some other episodes. About, yes. You know, I grew up in that era. I was fortunately a child, so I did not have a full <laughs> understanding of how insane it was. Yeah. So, uh, this is all his plan, and it, again, does not quite work. But it it wasn't all the whole plan. There was another element, too, right? There was another brewing yeah. company that, that Pabst was looking at yeah. acquiring. Pabst wanted to merge with Olympia Brewing Company. They were also struggling at uh-huh. the time. So Pabst's thought was that they could combine their forces— and be mm. stronger together, while Jacobs thought that they would kind of drag each other down. Pabst had offered $70 million in cash for 49% of Olympia stock. And Olympia was also known as kind of like a, a bargain beer mm-hmm. uh, label. So, yeah, this was a fear. Jacobs was like, no, this is like a rock tying itself to an yeah. anchor. But Pabst really did not want Jacobs to to hostily take them over. Yeah. So they spent $11 million to fight Jacob's attempts at acquisition. And apparently he wasn't the only one interested in getting hold of the company either. No. They also got bids from Schmidt & Son Brewery, or Schmidt & Sons Brewery, for $25.50 per share. And Jacob's was offering it at $24 mm-hmm. per share. And Pabst said no to that one too, but it was like a gentler no. It was like, if you come back to us with a cash offer, we might consider it. Yeah, yeah. We often see this where companies will say, you know, I would rather take cash than a stock offering mm-hmm. because there's no telling if that what you are offering is going to be worth the same amount once the transaction is complete. Yeah, but neither Jacobs nor Schmidt & Sons got papsed. Instead, a guy named Paul Kalmanowitz, who was in charge of a holding company called S&P Company, would purchase this. S&P Company would later become the Kalmanovitz Charitable Trust, and it was a nonprofit, which would become an issue. But that was in 1985, and uh, they did it for $63 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's actually a lower price than what was looked at earlier. Yeah, but I I don't think there was as much bad blood necessarily there. It also wasn't looked at as an outsider because Kalmanovitz was already – owner of a brewing company. Mm -hmm. In fact, he owned a couple, the first of which was the Meyer Brewing Company. Yeah. Now, that being said, him buying Pabst was considered an aggressive takeover. Yeah, it was uh, hostile, uh, to say the least. So you wonder what these hostile takeovers mean. It essentially means that rather than go through the board of directors of a company— and and to be fair, the board of directors for Pabst was kind of like seen as being a little unruly. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of doing that, you go directly to the shareholders and you either offer to buy shares from the shareholders or you convince shareholders to vote for the acquisition. And that was how they were able to leverage this and turn it into a sale. Yeah. Uh, and things – Chug along. Yeah, and then Kalmanowitz would die in 1987. And then guess what? When people leave the company? The company's profits tank. Yes, so from 1990 to 1996, Pabst did not turn a profit. All right. Ugly, ugly thing to see, like a a company losing money year Mm -hmm. over year for for essentially seven years. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, Then we get into one of those 
situations I was talking about before about a beer company licensing out its product to a different brewery, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of Pabst beer production was contracted out to Straw Brewing Company, which Jonathan pronounces better than I do. But it's the one that uh, ended up purchasing Schlitz back yes. in 1981, I think. Yes. Um, and that same year, 1996, the original Pabst Brewery. In Milwaukee. In Milwaukee, after 152 years in business, was shut down. And that upset Milwaukee locals. So Pub stopped carrying their their beer. Yeah. And people started boycotting and the Brewers Union was suing because that was a huge loss of jobs. Yeah. And also we learned a valuable lesson that brewer is a hard word to say. Yes. It's very difficult. <laughs> As we go on, I was like, oh, yeah, I have trouble with brewery and brewer. <laughs> <laughs> so many times it has been edited out. Uh, but this is also when uh, Pabst would become what a lot of people would refer to. And this this is not unique to Pabst, but would become a virtual brewery. The idea that the, it's a company still. It still mm-hmm. owns intellectual property, that being the mm-hmm. recipe and designs but of Pabst. they're not creating the product. Right. They're having another brewery yes. actually brew the beer. But interesting turn of events. In 1999, Pabst acquired Stroh. Yeah, so they, they had been licensing it out to Stroh, mm-hmm. and then they buy the company, which is how Pabst became the owner of... Schlitz. Another bargain price beer. Yes. And then they sold the actual Stroh brewery to another company, City Brewing Company, and then they contracted all of their brewing to the Miller Brewing Company in 2001. (laughs) This is what we were talking about when we said this. I feel like we almost need uh, a wall with a bunch of pieces of paper and red string in between all of them. Yes, yes. It's it's like a CSI case. doesn't really work great for audio podcasting, but it would help us understand what's going on. No, so Paps kind of said, oh, we're going to stay a virtual brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, by this time, they're based in San Antonio. Also, uh, another side note, I, I know I keep doing this. Mm, I don't fine. think I've ever seen a company change its headquarters as frequently as Pabst has. Because we're we're just now, we're talking about Milwaukee to San Antonio, mm-hmm. really. But pay attention, because it jumps around a little bit. Yes. Uh, but things were actually starting to improve at this point, right? Like, they were starting to slowly see some... Upward creep of important numbers. Yes, and in 2003, they were actually named the best-tasting domestic beer in the Hipster Handbook. And they were very, very popular in Oregon at that time. And the reason why is because they were selling sponsorships to bike messengers. But the bike messengers didn't have to wear tacky logos, and so the bike messengers liked them. The bike messengers started drinking the beer, and it kind of developed this, like, organic growth, word of mouth. yeah. Hence the hipster millennial trend. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I like that you have this other nice theory here that ties into another topic that we've covered on the brink. Sriracha. Yes. You have this this nice little uh, kind of symmetry thing going here. Yeah, because they, they stopped buying outright advertising. I mean, they, they were sponsoring bike messengers. They, but were, they were relying so much on grassroots approach. Yes, yes, yeah. growing organically, which did— work really well for Hoi Fung Foods and Sriracha. Yeah. I, I actually watched a short video about this where the guy who was in charge of that that whole marketing thing mm-hmm. right around that time 
where he talked about this. And at one point he talked about how he went in essentially dressed as a bike messenger to a bar. And this was already <laughs> when this is already starting to happen, right? And he noticed that there was a counterculture that was developing. It was people who were kind of, their identity was based start, partly on the idea of being an, the outsider, mm-hmm. right? They like the things that aren't really popular. They're not mainstream. That was really a lot of the identity of hipster was what you were not. Yes. And the idea was you were not mainstream. And Pabst Blue Ribbon at this point, despite the fact that it had been an award-winning beer and had been around for more than a century, was thought of as not mainstream. And it started Mm -hmm. to get popularity. And what he tells the story about, he goes into a bar. He's dressed as a bike messenger. He has a whole bunch of Pabst swag in his his messenger bag. And he goes to the bartender and he introduces himself. And he specifically says, you know what? Don't tell anyone I'm here, but... I represent Pabst Blue Ribbon. I'm just just here to, you know, hang out. And of course the bartender starts telling people, mm-hmm. which was what the guy had planned in the first place. Yes. He manipulated the hipsters. And then soon enough, people are coming up to him, talking to him, and getting their hands in that sweet, sweet Pabst swag. And that was uh, an example of this grassroots approach. They started going to music festivals mm-hmm. and kind of handing out stuff there. They were essentially going to the places where the hipsters were going and yeah. the hipsters were taking it as word of mouth and they became the counterculture beer. Yeah. And then uh, there, there is another theory as to what helped its growth. And, and that is that the people who did still like Pabst, who didn't swear it off when they closed down in Milwaukee, who were still drinking it on the regular because it's what they grew up with and liked. Mm-hmm. We're worried about it going out of business because now it's no longer popular. So as it starts getting word of mouth, they're like, oh, yes, yes, let's support this. I want to keep my Pabst. Now, we get to another complication. I mentioned earlier that the S&P company became the uh, the nonprofit group. Uh, but that would end up being a problem in 2005 mm-hmm. because the IRS said that the organization could not own a – for-profit company and still maintain its non-profit status. They were told essentially, you got to sell Pabst. Or you're going to have to... You're going to lose your non-profit and then you're going to get taxed a lot. But there was a problem. They could not find a buyer for it at market price. Right. So then they are like, hey, can we get like maybe a little deferral on this? And the IRS said, totes, brah, you get five years. I guess the IRS like Pabst as well. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) In 2006, Kovalchuk resigned as CEO. Yep. And Kevin Kotecki took over. And now Paps moves to Illinois. So now went Milwaukee, San Antonio, Illinois. At least Illinois makes sense because they had a brewery there. And also, I mean, that's where the World's Fair was. Yes. So there's that too. And in 2007, they re-release... Schlitz. Schlitz. Yeah. Can, I, can I just say, when you were saying Paps Schwag, I really wanted it to be Schlitz Schwag. <laughs> I got to be real careful here because the more I say these words, the more I'm absolutely certain something's going to slip through that shouldn't. You know what? I got to sober up after my uh, virtual fake beer that I took at the last break. I'm going to take another break and have a virtual fake coffee. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. 
Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. <laughs> mm, that's good virtual fake coffee. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Jonathan. All right, we're back. So what happens next? So in May 2010, the company sold to Dean Metropoulos. Yeah, it's a Greek name. Metropoulos? Yes, Metropoulos. It's not Metropolis. There's a U in there. Yeah. Uh, who reinvigorated the company and the brand. He had help of his sons. So they they really doubled down on this. Let's appeal to hipsters. Let's appeal to millennials thing. Um, millennials like affordable products, and they yeah. also like products that promote experience over, I guess, purchase. Right. And also, again, they often thought, oh, it's outside of the mainstream. Yes. There's something kind of cool about it. There, there's a, there's some overlap in the Venn diagram of hipster and millennial. Yeah, not entirely. Yeah. But uh, they bought the company for $250 million. Wow. The next year, 2011, they moved to L.A. <laughs> okay. So wait, wait, wait. Milwaukee, San Antonio, Illinois, Los Angeles. Yes. All right. Um, and then they they started, like I said, marketing to millennials. So they used Will Ferrell to sell not Pabst Blue Ribbon, but Old Milwaukee, which was another brand that brand they, they were selling. They created, yeah. Um, that that commercial alone, it only showed in three markets, mm-hmm. but it got four million views on YouTube. And 339 million media impressions across the country. So, again, it ended up being, you know, they pay for a a regional, local uh, marketing campaign. But because Mm -hmm. of the Internet, it gets broadcast over the entire world. But they also, they do make one decision. And while it didn't hurt the company, some people were not very fond of it. They allowed the Milwaukee Brewery to be slated to be turned into mixed-use development. Yeah. That's something that we see a lot here in Atlanta and a lot Mm -hmm. of places in the United States where old— uh, in fact, we're recording in an old facility that is no longer used for what it was. But uh, there are a lot of factories and warehouses and stuff that got turned into lofts and mixed-use yeah. development. By 2012, 
PBR was selling 92 million gallons of beer. And I wonder just, how that translates to barrels. I don't know. I I think it's four hands high okay. and a cubit. Um, but no, it's a 92 million gallons of beer. So just to give you an idea of how big a change this was, 12 years earlier in 2000, they sold less than 1 million gallons. So they went from less than 1 million gallons and 12 years later, they're selling 92 mm-hmm. million gallons. That You could say that's a great return from the brink. It really is. It really is. In 2013, they start brand partnerships. So they're kind of ditching the, the no advertising, but they're still taking a creative route to it. They partner up with companies like Vans and Santa Cruz Skateboards, and they even hold their very own music festival. Yeah. Just to appeal to folk. So many jokes that I could make right now, but I'm not gonna. So why don't you tell us what happens next then? All right. Well, in 2014, they sold to Blue Ribbon Intermediate Holdings LLC for a whopping $700 million. So they bought it for two fifty, mm-hmm. sold it for seven hundred. Newsflash, business owners, that's how you want to do it. Yes. You, you definitely want the Pabst Blue Ribbon approach of buying for 250 and selling for 700 The holding company was acquired by another company because that's all the way mm-hmm. – the way these things seem to work in the beer industry. Uh, Chairman Eugene Cashper in partnership with TSG Consumer Partners – and then they opened their HQ in Los Angeles. Yes. In 2015, Paps decides to take an old church that was a part of the original brewery mm-hmm. and turn it into a taproom and microbrewery. And then they completed that in 2017. So recently, yeah, that opened up. And you can go there and you can take a tour. And you can even try out some of the discontinued beers that Pabst has made throughout its history, but no longer uh, produces in large amounts. But you can you can try them there at that brewery. Yeah. Did you know that uh, Pabst is also popular in China? I did not know that. Uh, well, one, they, they brew a Chinese beer that I'm assuming is the— uh, the popular beer at an affordable price for China. It's uh, Singtao. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also get, and I'm not sure if it's malt liquor because Pabst Brewing Company does malt liquors as well, or if it's a beer, it is called Pabst Blue Ribbon 1844, which is why I think they might have started in 1844 instead of 1849. Yeah. And it runs at $44 a bottle. Wow. That's not Chew. your bargain beer anymore, right? No. All their beers are still brewed over by Miller Coors now. Yes. Uh, that So they're still a virtual brewery in that sense. They own the the recipes. They own the trademarks. Yeah. But other breweries are actually making the beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that includes all of their, their beers, including like not just Pabst Blue Ribbon, but Schlitz, Old Milwaukee. Also, Colt 45. We got through this whole thing without talking about Lando Calrissian. Yeah. But uh, Colt 45 as well. And let's take a look at some other little facts and figures. That kind of brings us up to yeah. what's going on today. But we've got a little bit more to share before we sign off. Yeah. So, you know, Pabst Brewing Company, they spent a lot of time in the brink. They came out. They really had a resurgence. In 2016, they were ranked third overall. And in 2017, fifth overall for sales volume. So they've definitely been mm-hmm. uh, misplaced. One of, the, one of the things that has happened uh, and it's sort of to the detriment. Actually, two things that kind of have led to a little bit of a dip in their their sales with the markets that they were doing so well in. Mm-hmm. One was, and this is one of the things that makes me go crazy about hipsters, is that once the beer started getting popular, hipsters didn't want to drink it anymore because it was becoming mainstream. Yeah. That's irritating. But the other thing was that 
uh, people started to discover microbreweries. Mm-hmm. So breweries that were only making small batches of beers. They're very hyper-local type beers. You started seeing more of a focus on that, especially among both uh, hipsters and millennials. I know in Atlanta, like microbreweries are almost as prevalent as Waffle Houses. Oh, yeah. No, you can't throw a rock without hitting someone brewing beer, which I I don't recommend doing because the fermentation process is kind of explosive. And we were looking at a potential other brink moment for Pabst just very recently, right before recording this, because their contract with Miller Coors Mm -hmm. was supposed to be up in 2020, and Pabst wanted to extend the contract to 2025, Mm -hmm. which they were saying they had the right to do. Mm -hmm. But Miller Coors wanted to make their own products. They were saying they didn't have the capacity to do that, and they wanted to end the contract in 2020. So there's been a little bit of a legal battle, which just recently got resolved. Yeah, there was actually fear also that Miller Coors might even make a beer that would have been in direct competition yeah. with, and that was why. It wasn't necessarily the capacity. That was one of the arguments, that it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily capacity, but rather that Miller Coors wanted to, yeah. to go after that same market. Pabst was saying that Miller Coors was making their decisions in bad faith. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's going to now continue for a little longer. PBR will still be made through this virtual brewery mm-hmm. uh, arrangement. So it's not going yet. Uh, It did, however, actually go all the way to trial. Yes. Yeah. Um, And the trial took nine days. It was supposed to be, the decision was supposed to be made by a jury. And then before the jury can make a final decision, Pabst and Miller Coors came to an agreement. Yeah. This frequently happens. Yes. Before a jury can actually uh, come to a decision that is irreversible, you'll find settlements where companies are kind of hedging their bets. So, um, We've got a couple more little fun facts, one of which is uh, how uh, everyone knows Pabst Blue Ribbon, mm-hmm. but they may not know that obviously there, there are other – Like Schlitz and Old Milwaukee. Yeah. And, so how many different types are we talking about here? 30. There are 30 wow. brands of beer and malt liquor. So that does include their malt liquors as well. That's a lot though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I did not know that. <laughs> also, what's up, Canada? A – uh, in 2017, uh, you could buy a 99-can case of PBR. And presumably a cart to carry it out in. Well, you know, that same year, PBR did sell a jacket that was also a beer cooler. <laughs> Not necessarily just in Canada, but, like, it had all these pockets, and you could put your <laughs> Your beers, yeah. So while you're chilling outside, so's your beer. Yes, which is kind of fun that they made a six-pack coat because— it's rumored that Pabst invented the six-pack, which wouldn't surprise me since they were the first beer, essentially, to do canning. Yeah. Yeah. First widely known yes. one, certainly. Uh, and they're, at their uh, brewery tours in Milwaukee, they used to offer something that all the college students thought was the best yes. thing ever, which was? Bottomless beer. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. Uh, <sighs> also, before we recorded this show— I mentioned to Ariel a certain classic oh, piece of cinema that uh, she has yet to see. So we're going to have to watch that uh, at some point in the future. I am, of course, talking about the live-action Disney classic, Midnight Madness. It was in the era where Disney was first uh, kind of exploring non-family films, mm-hmm. really, for the for things that weren't documentaries or like, you know, Davy Crockett or anything like that. 
And in it, it's uh, got a group of of different contestants who are all going on this citywide scavenger hunt that has all these different puzzles they have to solve. And one, uh, and it's in Milwaukee. And one of the important elements, one of the important places they have to go to is the Pabst Blue Ribbon Brewery. And they have a whole song about it with an angelic choir and light coming down because one of the uh, teams is is a bunch of jocks who are really into beer. So that is something I'm going to have to show Ariel because I have to complete her Disney education. You've really sold me on it, Jonathan. In fact, we should go do that now. Yeah, we're going to go and uh, watch some Disney movies, but we will be back to talk about more companies and these pivotal moments in their history where things are really dark and either they get bright again or they all fall apart. Yep. But if you want to catch up on more episodes of The Brink, you can look us up at our website, which is at thebrinkpodcast.show. Yep, thebrinkpodcast.show. And if you have ideas for future episodes or you just want to... Chime in. Chime in. You know, we like talking with folks. You can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.